السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ میں پیس بلیسنگس اینڈ مرسی آف اللہ بی آن آل آف یو وی اسٹارٹ ٹو ڈیز پروگرام وتھ ریسٹیشن آف دی ہولی قرآن اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم یا ایوہ الذین آمنوا اتقوا اللہ حق فَتُقَاتِهِ وَلَا تَمُوتُنَّ إِلَّا بَأَنْتُمْ مُسْلِمُونَ وَاعْتَصِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا وَاذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذْ كُنْتُمْ أَعْضَاءً فَأَلَّفَ بَيْنَ قُلُوبِكُمْ فَأَسْبَحْتُمْ بِنِعْمَتِهِ إِخْوَانًا وَكُنْتُمْ عَلَى شَفَاعٍ حُفْرَةٍ مِّنَ النَّارِ فَأَنْقَذَكُمْ مِنْهَا كَذَلِكَ يُبَيِّنُ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ آيَاتِهِ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَهْتَدُونَ صَدَقَ اللَّهُ الْعَزِيمُ the translation from surah imran chapter 3 verses 102 and 103 i seek refuge with allah from satan the accursed in the name of allah most gracious most merciful o ye who believe fear allah as he should be feared and die not except in a state of islam and hold fast all together by the rope which Allah stretches out for you and be not divided among yourselves and remember with gratitude Allah's favor on you for you were enemies and he joined your hearts in love so that by his grace you become brethren and you were on the brink of the pit of fire and he saved you from it thus does Allah make his signs clear to you that you may be guided verily Allah has spoken the truth. For those of you who have come to the Islamic Research Foundation for the first time, let me brief you about the activities of IRF. Islamic Research Foundation was established in 1991 with the objective of removing misconceptions amongst the non-Muslims as well as Muslims. Towards that direction, IRF has used the Quran and the Sunnah as the basis of our efforts. Besides the Quran and the Sunnah, we have used reason, logic, and modern scientific knowledge to explain the basic tenets of Islam in a very clear fashion. Alhamdulillah, the Islamic Research Foundation has the largest collection of video cassettes in its uh, reference library 
And every morning, Alhamdulillah, the IRF cassettes are shown on the cable network in Bombay as well as other cities in India. Towards developing this, uh, these cassettes, the IRF has a full-fledged Betacam editing studio, recording studio, and other facilities to <coughs> make these cassettes available as and when required. The motto of the Islamic Research Foundation can be found in Surah Nahal, chapter 16, verse 125, which says, al hasana when translated, it means, Invite all to the way of thy Lord with wisdom and beautiful preaching and argue with them in ways that are best and most gracious. In doing so, in following this principle of the Holy Quran, this verse of the Holy Quran, Alhamdulillah, IRF has been implementing and applying in this direction since the past seven years. Towards that direction, we also have various programs on Saturdays, Sundays, and Mondays where there are lectures followed by question-answer sessions. Today as well, we have amongst ourselves Dr. Abu Amina Bilal Phillips, who is going to speak on the topic, the evolution of fiqh. Dr. Abu Amina Bilal Phillips was born in Jamaica, but grew up in Canada where he accepted Islam in 1972. He completed a diploma in Arabic and a BA from the College of Islamic Disciplines at the Islamic University of Medina in 1979. Then he completed an MA in Islamic Theology in 1985, followed by a PhD in Islamic Theology in 1994. He taught Islamic education in Arabic in private schools in Riyadh for over 10 years. Between 1992 and 1994, Dr. Bilal established and lectured in the graduate and undergraduate departments of Islamic studies in the College of Education of Sharif Kabun Suan Islamic University in Cotabato City, Mindanao, Philippines. Since 94, he has founded and directed the Islamic Information Center in Dubai, UAE, and the Department of Foreign Languages as at Dar al-Fatah Islamic Press in Sharjah. Presently, he is also a professor at the American University in the UAE. His works have been translated in several languages, and he has lectured extensively throughout the world. Among his published works are translations of Ibn Taymiyyah's essay on the jinn, the devil's deception, Arabic calligraphy and in manuscripts. He has co-authored Polygamy in Islam, he has authored Evolution of Islamic Law, Tafsir Surah Al-Hujurat, The Ansar Cult, Fundamentals of Tawheed, Salvation Through Repentance, Islamic Studies, Book 1, 2, and 3, Hajj and Umrah, According to the Quran and Sunnah, Islamic Rules on Menstruation, Arabic Reading and Writing Made Easy, Arabic Grammar Made Easy, The Best in Islam, The Purpose of Creation and Dream Interpretation According to the Quran and Sunnah. He has also authored The True Message of Jesus, The Exorcist Tradition in Islam, and Funeral Rites in Islam. It's a great, great pleasure that Dr. Abu Amina Bilal Phillips is with us today to speak, as I said, on the topic, the evolution of fiqh. I would request Dr. Abu Amina Bilal Phillips to address us. 
ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله all praise is due to Allah and Allah's peace and blessings be on his last prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and it is our duty to not only praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but to seek refuge in him from the evil which is in ourselves and the evil which results from our deeds for whomsoever Allah has allowed to go astray none can guide and whomsoever Allah has guided none can send astray and i bear witness that there is no god worthy of worship but allah and that muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam is the last messenger of allah the topic as announced this evening is that of the evolution of fiqh or islamic law and this topic is actually a very vast topic which i really cannot hope to cover in the one hour which is allotted to me so i will basically only give you the headings and touch some of the major issues and for details of it there is a book which i have written called the evolution of fiqh which goes into the finer details of the issues with regards to the process by which islamic law has evolved over time to the present day really focusing on how muslims should approach islamic law this was an issue particularly to me having become a muslim initially in toronto where my first learnings of islam were with uh, people who were associated with the jamaat tabligh and those who taught me taught me the hanafi school of islamic law and impressed on me that it was important that i be a hanafi because most muslims were hanafis and i accepted that returned and informed my family that we are now hanafis after having done that then uh, i lived and worked with a brother from egypt his father was one of the scholars involved in the movement uh, the ikhwan movement in egypt and he was quite knowledgeable about himself about uh, Islamic law etc and I studied Arabic with him and in the course of studying you know I came to realize that well he was a Shafi'i and um there were some strong arguments for the opinions which he held so it left me in something of a dilemma and I decided at that point really that I needed to find out for myself what in fact is the correct position uh, based on the sources of islam you know rather than taking it second hand you know from somebody who got from somebody else you know or trying to have people read books to me or translate certain passages from books to me i felt it was just not really leading to clarity for myself so i felt it was necessary to go and study for myself and Alhamdulillah I applied to study in Medina as was mentioned in the introduction and I learned Arabic there and and studied in university and I got an understanding a clarity 
about uh, Islam from its sources, which laid to rest for me the problems which existed uh, in my mind as a new Muslim, wherein I found myself in a position where I was forced to to accept things which I had rejected as a concept in Christianity. I had rejected the idea that God is three and yet one at the same time. This was something which was quite illogical. And I knew and, ex and realized that what, what Christians were doing was they were turning off their sense of logic, their sense of, of uh, reason to accept this. And here I was in coming into Islam, believing, of course, at first Islam was one, you know, whereas Christianity had so many different sects, etc., and then coming in to find there are some differences here also. And furthermore, there were issues where one school of thought was saying this is permissible and another school of thought was saying this is not permissible. Where one was saying if you did this, you have lost your state of ablution. You no longer have wudu. Another one said that you do have ablution. These were differences or contradictions to me which really couldn't coexist. And for me to accept, as I was told in the early days, that all of the schools of Islamic law were correct, the important thing was just that you had to follow one. As I said, it was stressed to me that the Hanafi one was the best one to follow. But the key was you had to follow one. But they were all correct. It meant then that I had to accept that it was possible for a person to be in a state of wudu and yet not be in that state of wudu at the same time. I said, this was something my brain told me this can't be. My, my mind told me this was not something possible. But if I was to accept blindly this idea that yes, it's all correct, then this is in fact what my brain had to do. I had to turn off my brain. I had to stop thinking. Don't think about this. You just accept it and carry on. So, alhamdulillah, through my own personal studies in Medina and elsewhere, I got the clarity which resolved these issues for me. And Having understood that, then I tried to pass that information on to others. This is, uh, we could say this lecture is an extension of that. Uh, the book which I wrote on the topic, I think, really covers it in far greater detail uh, than I would possibly be able to do this evening. But I can say briefly that from the very beginning, the resolution of the conflict of the differences amongst the schools of thought led to and has led to 
two extreme attitudes. One, in which some people have totally rejected the schools of Islamic law altogether as being irrelevant. And what that has led to, where people have not got disciplined Islamic legal background, is deviation. Because the human mind now starts to make judgments and interpretations without a solid foundation. The other extreme was that these schools were divinely ordained and one had to be chosen. And this also historically had led to a fanaticism in the Ummah, some of the effects of which we'll discuss later. But it became a part and parcel of the problem of cultural Islam among Muslims, where the foundations of Islam, the Quran and the Sunnah, no longer played the major role that it did in the lives of the early Muslims. Instead, it became, the decisions were made based on opinions of opinions of opinions. So when a person was confronted with or presented with something from the Quran or from the Sunnah, the response would be, I am a Hanafi. We Hanafis don't do this. Or I am a Shafi. And we Shafis don't do this. This would be the traditionalist response. And in fact, when we actually go to the root of many of these issues, we will actually find that the Hanafi school never took this position and the Shafi school never took that position. But that it is just a cultural practice amongst Muslims in a particular area. And because they were from the Hanafi school, most of the scholars of that area were from the Hanafi school, they assumed that whatever they're doing was from the Hanafi school. People were no longer able to distinguish between what was actually legally a part of Islam from what is a product of their own cultural inheritance or adaptations, etc. This is one of the major problems I feel facing the Muslim world today. And one of the points I think we need to look at before actually going into the issues of the, the evolution of law is really what is meant by fiqh, Islamic law itself. Now, when we use the term sharia and we use the term fiqh, these in the minds of most people are synonymous. But the fact of the matter is that they are not. There is a distinction, a clear distinction between the two. They are interrelated, but they are not one and the same. The 
fiqh or the sharia, we can say briefly, represents the totality of divinely revealed laws. What is from the Quran and what is from the sunnah, what is based on revelation. And as such, it has the quality of not changing with time. The sharia is fixed. It is fixed. It will not change. It cannot change. Muslims are not allowed to change it. Whereas, fiqh, on the other hand, represents the application of the sharia to varying circumstances. Taking different parts and aspects of the sharia and applying it where needed in the various human uh, circumstances, locations, uh, experiences. So what we're talking about in the case of fiqh is not divine revelation, but human interpretation. And this is why uh, the basis of this issue of the, even the term fiqh itself is from a hadith reported in both Sahih and Bukhari and Muslim that Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu had said مَنْ يُرِدِ اللَّهُ بِهِ خَيْرًا يُفَقِّهُ فِي الدِّينِ that whoever Allah wishes good for he gives him fiqh of the religion gives him a deep understanding fiqh meaning to understand a deep understanding of the religion so fiqh is human reasoning in the application of the sharia either the direct application of the sharia or the application of the goals of the sharia now a principle which is based on understanding human understanding is one which is changeable because human understanding will vary in time any given issue that we attempt to deal with will be according to the knowledge that is available to us. And 10 years from now, 20 years from now, our knowledge may change. For example, the issue concerning smoking is an issue which is a pressing issue plaguing the Muslim world today. Plaguing the Muslim world today. Cigarette smoking is at the peak in the world in the Muslim countries today. They did surveys in Turkey. They found that in uh, primary school, that well over 50% of the children were smoking. This is primary school. So you can imagine what the situation of the adults is. Who smoke. 
Now the ruling which was made concerning smoking, 500 years ago, when tobacco first came to the Ottoman uh, Empire, and the scholars made a, a judgment on it. They made a judgment based on the information available to them. They looked at smoking, and they looked at the effects to see what effects there are. If there are any negative effects, then they could make their ruling on the basis of it. What they found was that the only harm that they could see coming from smoking was it produced bad breath. The smoker's breath is well known. In the West, there are many products which are sold to cover it. You know, sprays people use in their mouths, etc., so that the smoker's breath will not be as noticeable. So they went back to the Sharia to find a ruling from the Sharia with regards to things which cause bad breath. And what they found, of course, are authentic hadiths from Prophet Muhammad in which he said, those who eat garlic, raw garlic and onions, should not come to our masters. Those who eat raw garlic and onions shouldn't come to our masters. It produces bad breath. Uncomfortable. When somebody turns to you in salah and says, Salaam alaikum wa rahmatullah, he's been eating garlic, onions, very uncomfortable. So to protect the prayers, people who are in their prayers from the harm which will come, Prophet Muhammad said, don't come to our masters. Pray at home. Now, anything which is going to deprive you of the additional benefits of praying in the masjid in jama'ah, which is 25 to 27 times greater than praying at home, it has to be something disliked. So this is how the scholars extracted the ruling. This is disliked. So from the dislike status, makru, of eating raw onions and garlic and going to masjids, they took that ruling and applied it to smoking. So 500 years ago, they ruled that it was makru. There were scholars, even from that time, one should mention, that still held that it was haram. But the vast majority went with the position that it was makru. They felt it was haram from the point of view that you know, it was a waste of wealth. It was just destroying a person's wealth. There was no benefit in it. It's extravagance. 500 years later, the Surgeon General of the United States of America announced in 1979-1980 that it has been conclusively proven medically that smoking causes cancer. This knowledge was not available 500 years before to the Ottomans. So once Muslims now have this new information, then one can no longer say, well, smoking is makru and just carry on. Why? Because, you know, the scholars of the past said it was makru, finish. No. Our knowledge is different. The information we have today is not what they had. So we now have to go back to the Sharia and see what is the ruling in the Sharia regarding things which cause death. 
or cause major harm. Cancer is death or devastation, physical, medical devastation. And, of course, the rulings are very clear. The rulings, whether it be in the Quran, La taqtulu anfusakum, or from the Sunnah, whoever kills himself will find himself in the hellfire, killing himself over and over again, the same way, Sahih Muslim. Or, Al Muslim man salim al Muslimuna min lisanihi wa yadi. Very clear, a Muslim is one who, from whom other Muslims are safe from his hand or his tongue. This person smoking, they've shown people who, who get what they call secondary smoke. They are as liable to get cancer as these people who are smoking themselves. Because even the smoke that the smoker takes, his is filtered. What's going into other people's lungs is unfiltered. So all of these things point to the fact that smoking is haram today. This is the correct ruling with regards to smoking. So this is a process. Now is that Islam changing? No, Islam hasn't changed. Has the Sharia changed here? No, the Sharia hasn't changed. The Sharia was used to get the ruling makru 500 years ago, and the Sharia is used to get the ruling haram today. Because our knowledge has changed. This is fiqh. Our knowledge has changed. And this is what provides Islamic, the Islamic legal system with a flexibility which makes it applicable to all places and times. Because this is a question which is commonly raised to us. How can we expect to apply Islam which was taught some 1,400 years ago? How can it possibly be relevant to us in the 20th century, going into the 21st century? As if one were to take the laws of Britain, the Magna Carta, the laws of America, the American Constitution, and to take these and try to apply it today, there are many parts of it which human society would reject outright. In the American Constitution, it states that a black man is three-fifths of a white man. This is the Constitution of the United States of America. The best brains of America put that together. This is something rejected. That white people are superior to non-whites. So, when one looks at the legal systems from the West, one can see, obviously, that they're not applicable today. What they've had to do is they've had to cancel. The Constitution is still there. But they've canceled all the sections which were recognized later to be you know, humanly uh, incorrect, or to inhumane or whatever. They had to cancel these sections. It's not a matter of applying it sometime here. and you know, Because there can never be a time. There can never be a time when it is acceptable to say that one group of people are by heredity but due to the color of their skin, inferior to another group of people. That was a belief held at that time, and the Constitution was a product of that belief. So that's why it is not applicable today. Because those laws, those legal systems, were the product of human reasoning. As such, there will be amongst it some good things, because Allah has given us some consciousness. 
and we have inherited you know over the generations and even people the peoples of uh, Christian Europe etc through the Torah the laws of the Torah have been inherited into their legal systems to some degree so to the degree that they these things these things have been inherited there is truth there so the legal systems of the past will not be totally irrelevant but will be largely relevant. Whereas Islamic law will be applicable for all times because the foundation, the Sharia, has been prescribed by Allah who created human beings and knows how human beings will change. It addresses the very nature of human beings. So those laws are universal laws which are not limited to any place or any time. Whereas the human component, the fiqh, this will be human effort to, to reason and to apply those laws over time. And these laws which have come out of the fiqh, these we recognize as being changeable. We are not bound by them. Where they're applicable, we utilize them. Where they're no longer applicable, we leave them. They're still based on Sharia, so it doesn't mean that they are irrelevant in their totality. The Sharia still is relevant. That aspect is still applicable where similar circumstances arise. Now, having understood this uh, distinction between fiqh and Sharia, <coughs> We can look briefly at how fiqh has evolved from the time of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu until ours. The Sharia has not evolved. He said because it is fixed. The Sharia is divine revelation. This is what guided Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. During the time of his prophethood, he was guided by divine revelation. But, at the same time, he did make some ijtihad. Ijtihad, meaning striving to come to conclusions by way of analysis, using deductive reasoning. This ijtihad existed even in the time of the Prophet Muhammad He made ijtihad, practiced fiqh, as well as his companions, they also practiced fiqh. However, the ijtihad, the reasonings, the deductions of the Prophet Muhammad and his companions during the time of the Prophet were never a fundamental source of Islamic law. The fundamental source was the Sharia, was revelation. If revelation confirmed the ijtihad of the Prophet Muhammad then it became law. If revelation did not confirm his ijtihad, then it was not law. Similarly, when his companions, 
marriage they had, and there were circumstances which arose in their time to the marriage they had. If Revelation confirmed it, it was accepted. If it didn't, it was not. So, the ijtihad of the Prophet Muhammad and the Sahaba were not considered independent sources of law in that period. Revelation was the main source. Just as a brief example, when we speak of ijtihad of the Prophet Muhammad we know his decision concerning the prisoners after the Battle of Badr. He asked his companions, what should we do with them? They gave different opinions. He chose one of the opinions. And then Allah corrected him and said that it was more suitable to do this. Which was one of the opinions of the Sahaba. That was to execute them. He chose mercy. Let them go. Get, you know, ransom themselves, etc. But Allah corrected that ijtihad and said, no, they should have been executed. The Sahaba... We know that Prophet ﷺ told them after the battle of the trench, the Khandaq, and they were to deal with Bani Quraidah, the Jews who had treacherously supported the pagans of Mecca to create a, a rare action against Muslims. They were to go to Bani Quraidah to tackle their fortress and uh, punish them for what they did that the Prophet Muhammad told the Sahaba, the leading group that went ahead, that they should not pray Salatul Asr except in the vicinity of the fortress of Bani Quraidah. When the time for Asr came on the way, the Sahaba differed. Some said, well, Prophet Muhammad said, don't pray Salatul Asr except in Bani Quraidah. So that's what we're going to do. We will not pray Salat al-Asr now. We will continue till we reach Bani Quraidah. Knowing that the time for Salat al-Asr would go. Meaning they would be praying Salat al-Asr in the time of Maghrib. Knowing that there is no joining of you know, Asr and Maghrib. You join Duhur and Asr. But, uh, you cannot join it to Maghrib. So if you are praying Asr in the time of Maghrib, you are praying Qada outside of its time. This was the Prophet Muhammad's instruction. That's the obvious meaning of that instruction, and that's what a group of the Sahaba went with, and they continued. The other group reflected and said, What was the intent of the Prophet Muhammad here when he said, Don't pray Asr except in Bani Quraidah? His intent was us to hurry, for us to hurry to get to Bani Quraidah. He didn't intend for us to pray Salatul Asr outside of the time. Allah has also said, that the Salah is, is written for the believers in established times. So they prayed Salatul Asr there and then went on. This was ijtihad amongst the Sahaba right here. We can see a difference in approach. Some of the Sahaba favored taking the statements of the Prophet Muhammad as they were. Don't try to get into it to see what he meant by it, etc., etc. And just go with it. And others said, well, we need to try to understand what was he intending here, you know. That there must be a reason for him to tell us to do this thing which seems to go against whatever else we've known. 
This is two differences in approach. And these two differences you will see developing themselves you know, through the evolution of fiqh till our times. Now, after the time of the Prophet Muhammad in the first era, which is known as the era of establishment, or the time of the righteous caliphs, which is still within the 7th century, we find that through the practice of the Sahaba, the fiqh or the principles of fiqh were identified as the Quran, the Sunnah, Ijma' and Qiyas. They were using the principle of Qiyas to establish their Ijma'. That is, basically, they would look to the Quran when issues arose. If they didn't find answers in the Quran, they would look to the Sunnah. And in looking in the Quran, even if they found an answer, they would also check in the Sunnah. Because really, though one looks first at the Quran, one cannot ignore the Sunnah. Because the Sunnah is revelation. And the revelation has to be looked at in its totality. And Allah has said in the Quran, That we revealed to you the mind of the Quran in order that you would clarify for the people what was revealed for them. So the sunnah cannot be separated from the Quran. Though you begin your research in the Quran, you cannot stop there if you find what you think is the answer. You still have to go to the sunnah because these two are inseparable. They cannot be separated. So they would check in the sunnah to see if there was further clarification. And if they didn't find their answers in the Quran and the sunnah, then they would gather, suggest some possible solutions. And uh, whatever they all agreed on, this then became the law or the ruling for that time. And that was that principle of that consensus of opinion came to be known as Ijma'. But now, when they were giving their opinions, they were not giving their opinions in a fashion which was unrelated to the Quran and Sunnah. They would still go back to the Quran and Sunnah to see some kind of implications. And from these implications, they were giving their opinions. So there was a kind of deductive reasoning happening here. And that deductive reasoning is what is referred to as Qiyas. So Qiyas was in operation there. Though the biggest issue or the biggest methodology was what they referred to as Ijma'ah. But the foundation of it was still Qiyas. People were not you know, coming out of the blue, not related to Quran and Sunnah at all. We could say at that time that the Madhab or the school of thought was really the school of thought of the Caliph. The Khalifa. Whatever he decided on finally, this is what everybody followed. And we know there were other opinions. Omar, radiallahu anhu, differed with Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, during his Khilafah. But he kept his opinion to himself. Abu Bakr made a decision concerning this, so he went ahead and did it. But when he became Caliph, then he changed it. And everybody was obliged to follow the decision that he made. So, 
the madhab really was one superficially on the surface. Everybody followed that of the khalifa. Though there were differing opinions. The differing opinions were tolerated. People had opinions for themselves, which they kept to themselves, though they may have practiced personally. But openly, they stayed behind the opinion of the Khalifa. Now, after the time of the righteous caliphs, we enter into the 8th century, known as the era of the Umayyads. In this period, the practice of ijtihad began to develop rapidly. Mainly because of the fact that the Umayyad leadership strayed away from the pure foundations of the Quran and the Sunnah. They began to accept and to practice principles which were adopted from societies around them, etc. And the leadership, meaning what we're saying is that there was corruption developing in the leadership. In the time of the righteous caliphs, the major companions of the Prophet Muhammad used to stay close to the caliphs. They would be there as a source of information for them in the making of their decisions, the shura the consultative body which would be uh, consulted when decisions had to be made. But by the time of the Umayyads, where the leadership started to become corrupt, then the scholars left the regions of the caliphs. They started to avoid the courts of the caliphs. Because to be there would be to be obliged to submit to corruption. So they instead moved to outerlying provinces, to other towns, other parts of the Ummah. And where people, of course, in these areas, they needed to, to know the correct rulings on different issues, then they were there to, to give those rulings. And a number of different centers of learning flourished over the uh, various areas of the Ummah. And the science of hadith, the authentication of the statements of the Prophet ﷺ evolved because of the sectarian splits which were taking place at this time. The Shia, the Khawarij were splitting off. And in defense of their positions, some of their members were fabricating traditions to give support to their deviant beliefs and ideas, etc. So among the scholars, there were those like Zuhri and others who began the process of collecting the authentic traditions. And what we find here is an effort, even in this period of the Umayyads, where to some degree the ijtihad of the Sahaba, the opinions of the Sahaba, and the generation that followed them, known as the Tabi'un, began to be compiled also. So fiqh, compilation of fiqh began there to preserve correct rulings because where the leadership had become corrupt and they were deciding and taking actions which were themselves illegitimate, there needed to be for the protection of the deen in the minds of the Muslims, there needed to be efforts to compile the correct rulings outside of those circles. 
So it was in this era that the initial schools of Islamic law appeared. And in that era there were many. I mean we know today of the four but in that time there were hundreds literally hundreds of schools of Islamic law. And among them there were those who appeared more outstanding than others. They were their knowledge etc was greater, their reasoning powers were stronger. So you found even in that period that students would be shifting around studying under different scholars and starting to gravitate towards you know those that tended to be the more outstanding amongst them. And in this period of time also the two trends of that we spoke of from the time of the Sahaba the trend of reasoning behind the revelation and accepting the revelation without trying to get into the reasoning also appeared and they were given names even from this time the school of Medina which was headed by Imam Malik came to be known as Ahlul Hadith from that time I know people tend to think of the name Ahli Hadith today is something a new madhab which has popped up you know just recently a few years ago in India Pakistan but the reality is that this term this uh, approach is ancient the people who studied around Imam Malik etc were known as Ahlil Hadith and those who studied around Imam Abu Hanifa in Iraq they were known as Ahlul Ra'i the peoples of opinion and Imam Abu Hanifa though he was called or the people in his area were called the people of opinion it didn't mean that they were basing every ruling and every decision just merely on opinion no but that they would try to find out the reasoning behind the various narrations to be able to apply them more widely this was their approach Whereas the people of Medina, their approach was that if the purpose of the laws were not defined by Prophet ﷺ, if he didn't give that clarification, then we will avoid trying to get into it with our minds. Just stay with what is obvious and clear. We know we're on the safe and clear path. That was their approach. So when people would sit in the circle of Imam Malik and they would ask questions, you know, what if, right, Imam Malik would tell them, please go to Iraq and speak with the what-ifers. Well, they were called the, the what-ifers in Arabic, Ara'ayta iyun, right? Because they would begin their questions with Ara'ayta. What if? So and so and so. So Imam Malik would say, go over there. You want to deal with what's real and in front of you right now? This has happened. What do we do? I say, I can give you a ruling for this. You know, based on this hadith, so and so and so. But what if? No, no. You go to Iraq. <laughs> okay. Now, we had in the era following it, and what we should note here is that in this period, as I mentioned, students of learning, the scholars themselves traveled, and they sat under various scholars. They did not limit themselves to any of the major scholars. In the era following it, 
the era of the Abbasids, this process of traveling and studying under different scholars widened even more. And you found, for example, Muhammad ibn al-Hassan al-Shaybani, one of the main students of Abu Hanifa. He is amongst the narrators of al-Muwatta. Meaning he memorized al-Muwatta in its totality. And he is among the major narrators of al-Muwatta. He studied under Imam Malik. Imam Shafi'i himself was a student of Imam Malik through his early days. Until Imam Malik died, then he went to practice law himself. He went to Yemen. There he was accused of Shiite leanings and brought to Iraq for uh, <coughs> judgment. Defended himself. Whilst he was there, he sought to study under the students of Imam Abu Hanifa. So he studied under Muhammad and Abu Yusuf. He studied under them and gained knowledge. And from that, he wrote a book called Al-Hujjah which became his compilation of fiqh rulings. Then he went to Egypt to study under Imam Al-Layth, who was the contemporary of Imam Malik. But by the time he got to Egypt, Imam Al-Layth had died. Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad. So he studied under the students of Imam Al-Layth. And he stayed there. And there he wrote a new book called Al-Um, in which he changed more than 50% of the rulings he had made in Al-Hujjah. He didn't have any problem. He changed his opinion. And he settled there in uh, Egypt. And that became the center of the school known as the Shafi'i school afterwards. And he made a statement, interesting statement, that... Imam Al-Layth was a greater faqih than Imam Malik. And he is one who studied under both. You can make that statement. He said, but Imam Layth's students caused his school to be lost. Imam Layth had weak students, so his school was absorbed by Imam Shafi'i and the Shafi'i school is what evolved. So we don't even know that there was a Laithi Madhab. Today, people, if you mention the Laithi Madhab, you say, what? Laithi Madhab? Oh, you're making up your own Madhabs or what? There's no Madhab, Laithi Madhab. This is what Imam Shafi'i said. That Imam Laith was a greater faqih, afqahu min Malik. That's how he put it. A greater faqih than Imam Malik. But Imam Malik's students were strong. He had strong, you know, legal uh, experts amongst his students. So his school of law continued. And in this period of time also, you found that there were other great scholars, people like Al-Awza'i, Al-Thawri, and others, who, though they were great legal minds, there were other factors which caused their schools of law to disappear. Some were political factors, as in the case of Athori, where he refused the Abbasid ruler Al-Mansur's appointment. You know, they wanted to appoint him as a judge. He refused it, tore up the letter and threw it in the Tigris Euphrates. And he had to go into hiding. 
Because in those days, you just don't refuse the caliph. So he went into hiding. means that he could not maintain students. The students, only his very close students used to hang with him, you know, go wherever he went. And then, when he was on his deathbed, he instructed his main student to erase everything that he wrote from him. All of his rulings, he said, erase them. Why? Because his position, as you will find with the position of the other scholars, was that their rulings were based on their time. They didn't want their rulings to become rigid, rigidly followed by others, blindly without any thought processes, etc. So he instructed his student to erase, and the student erased. So his school of law was never collected, compiled. It's only recently some uh, students researching in fiqh have compiled from the various books of the schools of Islamic law now that are around, wherein they make references to the opinions of Imam at tawri So they've compiled it all together. Now you can buy a book which is called the Madhab of Authority, with the rulings on the various issues, compiled from the other books. Similarly, we had Al-Awza'i, whose Madhab, uh, was very strong in the area of Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, and in Spain, which was the main madhab. But in the 10th century, a Shafi'i scholar by the name of Abu Zara, who was made the judge of Damascus, he offered a prize of 100 dirhams for whoever would memorize a concise book of Shafi'i Fiqh. He offered the prize of 100 dirhams. So the students, you know, students of learning in those days were poor, struggling. So in order to earn this money, though they followed other madhabs, whatever, they would go and memorize this concise compilation of the Shafi'i madhab. And of course, what happened is that after people memorized it, you know, though they were following other schools of Islamic law, this is now in their subconscious. When they start to make rulings, they make decisions, this was starting to affect their decisions. So eventually, they became Shafis. So the school of Al-Awza'i disappeared. By the 11th century in the region of Palestine, it disappeared. Not because necessarily it was weaker or so on, so, but just because of the act, basically, of that judge to make it. So, what this is telling us, when we look at this, right, what does it mean? I mean, for this is history. I mean, what does it really matter relative to us today? The significance of it is what? That the four madhabs that we know today were not divinely ordained, meaning that Prophet Muhammad you know, predicted them, although some people made up traditions to imply that he did predict them, but they remained because of a variety of factors. Either there were political support for them, for example, in the Ottoman period, the Ottomans adopted the Hanafi school as their the school of the empire. So they enforced the Hanafi school as the legal school for practicing in the courts throughout the Ottoman Empire. And so the Hanafi school spread. The Hanbali school basically had disappeared 
if it weren't for the fact that Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab had studied in uh, Iraq and had studied under scholars from the Hanbali Madhab and it was affected by Ibn Taymiyyah and his opinions and he was from the Hanbali Madhab. So the movement which he, the revivalist movement which he began in, in Saudi Arabia had overtones of the Hanbali Madhab. So the Hanbali Madhab would came back alive. Otherwise, basically, the Hanbali Madhab was dead. People didn't even refer to it anymore. Hardly. It was the Maliki, Shafi'i, and Hanafi. Hanbali Madhab was just, nobody even talked about it. Except for that fact. And that fact of that movement brought it back to life. It spread, etc. So there are political issues involved here. The Madhabs and their survival were not due to the fact that these were the greatest scholars of the Ummah. No. The Shafi already said that Alayf was a greater legal scholar than Malik. They survived because the students that were with them were good, strong students who maintained uh, their line of reasoning, etc., etc. There are there other factors beyond us saying that they were the greatest scholars of the Ummah. They were among the greatest scholars of the Ummah, yes. Among the greatest scholars of the Ummah. But to say, you know, to give somebody, for example, somebody the title of Imami Azam, you know, dangerous title. Because who are we to make that judgment? To say he is the greatest scholar of the Ummah. No, we cannot say this. He studied under other great scholars. Great scholars studied under him. Abu Yusuf and Muhammad al-Shaybani after the time of Abu Hanifa, differed with him in over 50% of his rulings. What we know today as the Hanafi Madhab is not the rulings of Abu Hanifa. Maybe a portion of it represents his rulings, but a greater proportion represents the rulings of his students who changed his rulings, disagreed with him and made other rulings in its place as their own knowledge increased, etc. Et These are among the realities of the school's of Islamic law. This was the way in which the schools developed. And the scholars who learned the religions learned under the scholars wherever they were. They moved from one scholar to another. They studied on periods of time with one. They went to study on another. They didn't have any problem with it. Nobody was telling them, oh, you're a Maliki student. No, go back to Imam Maliki. You can't study in our circle here. No, no. Nobody told them this. This was never expressed. People were free to take rulings, and that, that's what they did. They took rulings from wherever they found it to be correct, and you will find statements of the imams themselves referring to the students that they should not blindly follow whatever they ruled, that they should understand where the rulings came from and to make rulings based on the foundations. All of the imams, you can find similar statements attributed to them. And this is how fiqh, evolved in that state. It was very vibrant. But with the latter part of the Abbasid era, when you had a change take place wherein hypothetical fiqh, which was fiqh without a reality, developed in a large scale due to, mainly to the court debates, because what happened was that the Abbasid caliphs, you know, in their corruption, they would you have uh, court jesters, you know, dancers, singers, 
a court magician, a court astrologer. They had all these things there in their courts. And they also had a court scholar. They would have a scholar from the Hanafi madhab and one from the Shafi because these were the main two at the time. And uh, they would introduce, you know, for their entertainment, for the entertainment, you know, uh, philosophical entertainment, intellectual enjoyment, they would introduce legal issues and the scholars would debate over these issues. Whoever won the debate would be given a little bag of gold. Right? So you had this sense of rivalry developing because now the scholar from the Shafi Madhab, he wouldn't want to lose. You know, the issue of this debate was not that we're going to find the truth, but I want to win the argument by any means necessary. And this is when Greek logic and all this became prevalent in the arguments. You know, Usul al-Fiqh uh, developed on a basis of Greek logic. You know, Greek logic where, you know, right can be wrong and wrong can be right. Everything is relevant, you know, this kind of uh, reasoning. So you would find people would be, they wouldn't want to give up their arguments. You know, they would just go down with it. You know, because to lose the argument is to lose for your school. And, you know, so you found people clinging on in this way. A sense of fanaticism started to develop in and at the same time also, of course, you can imagine these court debates. You know, after talking about real and possible things, you run out, right? You run out of real and possible things to talk about. So then what do you do? You go to the hypothetical, the things which don't exist and likely cannot exist. So you found issues being raised now which were totally ludicrous, totally ludicrous which unfortunately remain in the books of fiqh even till our time. So you can find in fiqh books, for example, Shafi'i fiqh books, coming out of that period, which is still around, people will read it. Scholars, you know, discussing the issue. If a person passed wind into a bag and closed the bag, right, passing wind breaks your wudu, to pass wind. Right? So if you pass this wind into a bag, then close the bag, and carried it with you, and at a later point, you made your wudu again, and then you opened the bag and the wind came out. Is your wudu broken? <laughs> this, is, this is ludicrous. Anybody who is going to pass wind in a bag and carry it around, we should take him to the hospital. We don't need to debate whether his wudu is broken or not. You know, something wrong with his head. Right? Similarly, similarly, you can find in the books of Hanafi fiqh, and I ran into it in Singapore. There was a book there which was translated by somebody, Brother Maulwi from India. He translated it into English. A book, a basic book which they were distributing uh, for Islam, basic understanding of Islam. And in it, I found in the area, in the area of wudu, the man is putting the things which break wudu. Among them he puts having sex with a fish. This book was there. It was translated from the books. I told the brothers there in, in Singapore, I said, brothers, please destroy this book. Don't put this in circulation. If any non-Muslim saw this, what? Muslims debate about whether you, you, know, whether you have wudu if you have sex with a fish. I think you're mad. You know? But this was something which came out of that period of time. And unfortunately, some of those things, as I said, has remained in books. And sometimes people translating these books of the past directly, they bring this into the present. And it makes, really, Muslims look quite ludicrous. Now, the reality is, 
of the differences of opinions amongst the scholars because having understood that there were differences, we see this trend towards this fanatical attitude towards the schools of Islamic law. We say this is an abnormal trend. It wasn't normal. This was not the way of the early scholars. This trend of fanaticism you know, went to a point where I'm sure you're familiar with you know, rulings which were made which prohibited people from transferring from one madhab to another. After the fall of Baghdad, some scholars decided at that time that they were going to close the door of Ijtihad. No more Ijtihad. They said, all the Ijtihad is already done for us. No more, no need. And a rigidity, really hard attitude developed. So much so that over some differences, simple differences in rulings, Hanafi scholars ruled that it was not permissible for a Hanafi to marry a Shafi'i. It reached that point. It reached the point where they couldn't pray behind each other. So you had mosques which were built in Damascus and Iraq, etc. In that period of time, they had two mihrabs. One for the Hanafis, one for the Shafi'is. When the Hanafis finish their prayer, then the Shafi'is go and make their prayer. To this day, you can go to Syria. Of course, they're not doing it anymore, but you can still go and see those mosques from that period of time. And the Kaaba. Around the Kaaba, there were prayer, what they call maqam, maqamat, maqam, Hanafi for the Hanafis. If those who, when the time for prayer came, those who were Hanafis and making the tawaf would come line up behind the Hanafi Imam makes it. When he was finished, then they, the Shafi'is would go to Maqam Shafi. You know, you had these four structures around the Kaaba, one for each of the different schools of Islamic law. So you had four different salahs taking place around the Kaaba. I mean, this is how deep that fanaticism went. And of course, this is not from Islam at all. This is against the spirit of the scholars of the past, etc. You know, completely. And alhamdulillah, you know, since that time, of course, into our times, this attitude of fanaticism has settled down somewhat where people are now more willing to accept. But, you know, the simmerings of it still remain till our day. You know, till our day. You'll find people, depending how fanatical they are, you know, they'll, I, you can't pray behind Shafi's. They wipe on their socks. Or some Shafis were very... Hanafis, if they touch a woman, you, they, they still go and read your prayer. They, you know, we can't pray behind them. They're praying without wudu. You know. So these kind of attitudes still remain till today. And one of the common examples of it I've seen in many places where people from the Indian subcontinent and uh, have gone is that there will be two times for prayer for Salatul Asr in masjids in Hong Kong, in Sri Lanka, in these places, there will be two times for Salatul Asr till today. So you'll have, if they have Shafi and, and Hanafi Jamaat, they'll have two different Jamaats going over the masjids. And of course, this is a leftover from that era of fanaticism. Now, when we go back and look at the differences which existed amongst the scholars of the past, we have to come to some understanding as to why they differed. If they all were basing their rulings on the Quran and the Sunnah, then why were they different? The realities is one, that the Arabic language itself had different implications. Some words had dual meanings. So scholars would take different interpretations on the meanings. And you had also words which had both figurative and actual meanings. You know, some words may have dual meanings. The difference between having a dual meaning 
like the word pur, which means the menses of the woman as well as the period of purity between menses. This is two distinctly different meanings. They can't be one and the other. Whereas you had some other words like lamps, lamastum, which comes in the surah concerning touching of women. Lamps, this idea of touching, it had two implications. One, touching, literally touching, and the other one, which meant sexual relations. It was a, a metaphorical way of referring to sexual relations. So some scholars went with the metaphorical meaning, some went with the literal meanings. You also had grammatical differences, you know, words having different grammatical implications, which would lead to different conclusions. And then a big area of difference was that of the hadith narrations. The hadiths were collected after the time of the great scholars. The great scholars of law were in the 8th century, early 8th century. The collections were in the late 8th century, 9th century. This is when the collections of hadith took place, major collections. So what you found then is that there were many early scholars who were not aware. They made rulings based on what hadith was available to them. And naturally their rulings would differ from those who found other hadith. Some had different conditions in terms of why they accept, when they would accept the hadith. For example, in Iraq, because there was a lot of the fabrication of hadith took place in Iraq. So the scholars of Iraq were very, very particular. They wouldn't accept hadiths which, which had single chains of narrations. They would only accept if it had a number of chains, what they called a hadith, which was mashhur. You know? If it was a, an issue which went against an obvious text of the Quran, some other principle which was already established, they would not accept any change in that principle unless the narration which was brought to them was mashhur, with a number of having a number of narrations. So this is a condition they set. Other scholars favored, for example, the Sunnah of the people of Medina, what they call Amal Ahlul Medina, over hadith narrations, because they felt that these actions and what was done by the people of Medina, they were the descendants from the time of Prophet that what was done, what was common in Medina, was carried on by them. So this was a sort of a natural way in which the sunnah was carried on. So they would give precedence to it over hadith narrations, you know, where it was, the hadith narration may not be supported by a number of other evidences, but a single hadith narration, which seemed to go against the practice of the people of Medina, they will favor the practice of the people of Medina. But they also had principle of qiyas. This is where the biggest differences arose. Because the principle of qiyas now you're dealing with human reasoning. And scholars had different ways, different approaches to reasoning. Some developed principles which were acceptable by some and not by others. So you had different principles which evolved. Reasoning principles of istihsan, istislah, istishab al-asl. These were different principles which developed in different schools. There was a similarity. There were aspects of qiyas. Really, there were aspects of qiyas or reasoning around qiyas. But they employed slightly different approaches. Some scholars rejected ijma, like Imam Ahmed, for example. He rejected ijma. He said, Whoever claims ijma is a liar. That was his opinion. Ijma from the time of the Sahaba, okay. But go beyond that time, there was always scholars who differed. So to try to claim ijma and make a principle on the basis of it, he said, No, no. He wouldn't go with that. He said, I would prefer to follow a da'if hadith, a weak hadith, than to go to ijma, the claim of ijma. So 
these were differences in approach. So these differences led to a difference in rulings. So what is their situation? They made their ijtihad. Prophet Muhammad had said that whoever makes ijtihad, man ijtihada, fa'asaba falahu ajran. Whoever makes ijtihad and is correct gets two rewards. And whoever makes ijtihad and is wrong, they get one reward. So for them, alhamdulillah, they made their effort and they're rewarded for their effort. But for us today, what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to try to go with, as best as we can, what is correct. This is our responsibility. If in the area that we are, the scholars or Hanafi scholars, we study under them. But we are, in, in essence, we could say we are from the Hanafi school, based on that scholars who we studied under. And there's nothing wrong with that. In that, the scholars of the Hanafi school of Islamic law strove to apply the Quran and Sunnah in the various regions that they were. And the efforts that they made cannot be denied. We have to recognize them. We have to uh, utilize them where they are applicable. But if we find some ruling which doesn't seem applicable, and in another school we find a ruling more applicable, then we shouldn't hesitate to take that other ruling. Because it is ijtihad of human beings. And they committed errors. Their errors are forgiven because they were making ijtihad. So we cannot blame them for their errors. But if we realize that there was an error here because a hadith wasn't available or whatever, then it is wrong for us to blindly follow just saying, because we are Hanafis, then we're just going to follow it. We just ignore this other one. No. This is not correct. When Imam Malik was asked by his students, if a person followed a Sahabi in everything that the Sahabi did, would he be in the correct path? Would he be on the correct path? Imam Malik's answer was, no. Unless that Sahabi was correct. Because the truth is one. Meaning, he's saying that you cannot blindly follow a Sahabi. So if he was saying it's not correct to blindly follow a Sahabi, can we then today say we're going to blindly follow anybody? No. The only one who was protected from error was Rasulullah He was protected from error. He is the one that we can follow blindly. Anyone else, we have to weigh their rulings, their opinions based on the Quran and the Sunnah. This is the correct methodology in dealing with the issues of the schools of Islamic law. Today, we have to be tolerant. If a person chooses not to follow a madhab, but to study under whoever is available, without identifying, saying that I am a Hanafi or I am a Shafi or whatever, he chooses not to. This is right. No one should be coming and saying to him, you are deviant. Your imam is shaitan. You know, if you don't have an imam of the four, then your imam is shaitan. This is not, it's not right. This is not right. What about the many scholars of the past who were not students of these four imams? What are we going to say? Their imams were shaitan also? It's nonsense. At the same time, if a person chooses to follow one of the schools of Islamic law, 
This is the area that they're going to study in. These are the scholars that are available to them. This is where they prefer to study. Again, no one should come and tell them, this is deviation. You cannot follow a school of Islamic law. No, you have to be free of any school. No. This isn't correct either. If they wish to do that, it is their option. They're following the scholars. Because even the person who says, I'm not following any of the schools, they're following scholars. They're going to follow scholars. Because none of us has the ability to go back to the sources and extract all the laws right back from zero again. None of us. Knowledge of the Quran and the Sunnah to the degree to do that. No. We're going to depend on scholars. So if the scholars are from Ali Hadith or known leading scholars like Sheikh Masuddin Albani or others, whatever, they're still following scholars. And the point is, if they start to take the kind of position that if Sheikh Nasruddin said this, then that's it, finish. I don't want to hear you other, no, no, I don't want to hear any other opinion. This is it. Sheikh Nasruddin said it, finish. This Ali Hadith scholar, he said it, finish. That's the end of argument. Then you've become a blind follower. No different from the others that we spoke about who are blindly and fanatically following. We have to maintain an open mind. Blind following for us is prohibited. Of course, in practice, we will follow the rulings of the scholar who is we trust in our area, whatever we're following. And he says this. You know, if we ask him for the evidence, he explains. It's too complicated for us to understand, then what? <laughs> you, follow, you trust him, you know. He's not a corrupt individual. He seems to be a righteous man, etc. You trust him. Based on your trust of him, you follow him. So in practice, it's a kind of blind following, though, isn't it? In practice. Though, but your mind is not in the mindset of blind following. Meaning that if another scholar comes to visit and he explains this particular issue in a different way, that you don't say, oh, no, no, I don't want to hear. <laughs> no, I, no, my scholar already told me this. No, you keep your mind open. Hear what he has to say. If he brings evidences, so and so. And then in the end, you see, this seems to be more correct. Then what is on you now? To follow that one. If this one seems, after the explanation itself, to be more correct, then that's what you are obliged to follow. What appears, this is your own ijtihad. What appears to you to be the most correct. Not according to your desire, not necessarily what is most pleasing to your desires, but what appears to be the most correct based on the fact that so-and-so, he brings some evidence. Here's Quran, he brought hadith, he brought so-and-so. Where so so. the other one is just giving an opinion. You know, he, Maybe he brought an ayah from the Quran, but no hadith. So you can see there's a quantitative difference here. <laughs> okay? So this one appears to be more correct, then that's the one you go with. Because even in any of the given schools, you will find also differences of opinion. In the Hanafi school, you will find differences of opinion. You can find Hanafi scholars whose position was that with every movement in Salah, you should raise your hands. There's Hanafi scholars who held that position. They were not the majority, but they were among the Hanafi scholars. So, the point is here, in the end, we have to keep that kind of openness. Where we try to follow the deen to the best of our ability, based on the, the best of our knowledge. This is what Allah will hold us accountable for. And this requires, as I said in the beginning, tolerance. Tolerance of difference of opinions. 
that there people will hold different opinions. And if their opinions are based on evidence, etc., then we have to respect their right to hold those different opinions. If it's just based on desire, then we have a right to tell them, well, listen, this is not correct, brother. You know, if you're going to take a position, it should be based on some kind of evidence. We have Quran and Sunnah. This is our religion. It's not just opinion without foundation. So, in summing up, this massive topic, which I've just touched on, the position that the Muslim should take with regards to the schools of Islamic law is that they are the efforts of the great scholars of the past down to the present. They made tremendous efforts to implement the Sharia for us. They made rulings. We are obliged to respect them because wherever a person doesn't respect the scholars, the Prophet said, whoever doesn't respect the scholars is not of us. We are obliged to respect them. We should not speak disparagingly against them. If they made mistakes, they were human beings. Everybody makes mistakes. As the Prophet said, <laughs> all of Adam's descendants make mistakes. So we look at them as human beings, great scholars of the past who made this effort, handed it down to us. It is our responsibility to take benefit from it, not to reject it. But if a person chooses to focus on one school as the main area from which he studies, that is his right to do so. If he chooses not to, that is also his right to do so. And if we are able to disseminate this kind of approach, then inshallah we'll be able to remove some of the, the differences, some of the bad feelings which exist amongst the Muslims merely over this madhab fanaticism. Assalamu alaikum wa Jazakallah khair. Uh, Dr. Bilal, for this informative talk on evolution of fiqh. Now we begin the question and answer session. Please pose your questions limited to the topic only. For the brothers in the uh, multipurpose room, library and the reception area, we'll have one question from that side, one from the auditorium, and one from the ladies' side, alternatively. We begin the first question from the ladies' side. If students at Alpur Hamisa have changed his ruling, where are the original rulings? So the question was, if students of Abu Hanifa changed his rulings, where are the original rulings? These original rulings are recorded in the books of fiqh. Because when Abu Yusuf or Muhammad al-Shaybani you know, or Zufar changed their rulings, they would mention, Abu Hanifa was of this opinion, but we are of this opinion based on this hadith or this line of reasoning or whatever. So the original rulings of Abu Hanifa are recorded in the early books of fiqh till today. I mean, among the clear rulings, some people, if they hear this, they say, what? Abu Hanifa was of the opinion 
that if you drank substances which would be intoxicating in large amounts, as long as the quantity of drinking it is not intoxicating, it was permissible. That was his position. Meaning, if you took a glass of beer, right, and you only took, you know, a small amount, right, very small amount, it's not enough to intoxicate you, then it was permissible. I shouldn't say beer, but beer-like substances. I mean, things which are clearly alcohol, okay, there's no difference about it. But substances which were in the early stages of fermentation, which meant if you drank enough of it, you could get intoxicated from it. But small amounts of it would normally not intoxicate you. So he took that position. This is referred to, they call it nabith. He took the position that it was permissible. But his students, Muhammad and uh, Abu Yusuf, rejected that position. They went with the hadith, ma askara kathiruhu faqaliluhu ahram. Whatever intoxicates in large amounts, small amounts of it is forbidden. Can we have the next question from the brothers in the auditorium? Can a layman make ishtihad? And if he has to make ishtihad, what he can do? Question, can a layman make ijtihad? I don't know about layman, you know. Uh, if we say a person who is not a scholar, because layman sounds like, you know, you have the priests and the laymen, you know, this is the Christian traditions, right? Uh, can a person who is not a scholar or a major student of learning make ijtihad? Brother, we make ijtihad from the time you get up in the morning till the time you go to sleep at night. You make ijtihad. You're going to be making decisions based on information that you have. Circumstances arise in your life which... You don't know the answer for. You think back, well, what should I do here? And you, you make a decision. I, I think it's this way. I need to. This is your ijtihad. You try to find out as much as you can based on what you learned earlier. So this is your ijtihad. So there are different levels of ijtihad. Right? Each and every person is going to do some ijtihad in his, his or her lifetime, no matter how ignorant he may be. The point is, for a person to make ijtihad in terms of rulings for peoples, you know, this is what we're talking about. This is now becomes problematic. If you have no knowledge and you make ijtihad for people, this is a sin. Prophet said, two judges are in the hellfire and one in paradise. Two judges are in the hellfire and one in paradise. The judge who knows the correct ruling but rules against it is going to hell. The judge who makes a ruling without knowledge is going to hell. And the one who goes to paradise is the one who makes his ruling based on knowledge. This is the principle by which we say the ijtihad of the ignorant is unacceptable, it's sinful. Ijtihad meaning ijtihad for people. That's why we refer to him as a judge. Meaning he's judging between people making a ruling which people are going to follow. But for you on an individual level, what do you do? You make your own personal ijtihad. May we have the next question from the library? Assalamu alaikum, brother. Uh, this is a very basic question which I want to ask. I've got non-Muslim friends also. I mean friends who have converted to Islam. It caused a lot of uh, confusion in their minds. It is uh, that why do we have to name ourselves like uh, Ahlul Hadith or Salafi or many all of this uh, thing when it is, I mean, not directly proved through Quran and Hadith. In fact, there are verses which says, Huwa sammakumul muslimin. 
and yahiyu allazina amanu god has uh, referred to us with these names qad aflahal mu'minun is it's it's really creating a lot of problem and confusion <laughs> please clarify sorry if i'm uh, hurting somebody or god forgive me if i'm wrong thank you the idea of labeling oneself whether it is haji because we don't even have to go all the way to hanafi whatever even haji this idea of haji you know it is something which is not from islam really you know yes the person made hajj so but to take it as a title now where you could identify yourself haji sab you know haji islamically it is creating this whole issue of a person making hajj you know they have a special status now in society and perhaps there are people who never made hajj who are closer to allah than this person may receive more reward for their intention to want to make hajj than the person who went and made hajj but we cannot make these kind of judgments put these kind of labels but if we take it down to the level of Hanafi or Shafi so and so these terms were used in Arabic initially just to identify the school under which the person studied later on when it became a fanatical kind of attitude then people took it as a title so people you'll see the books written in that period that people were called you know so and so Hanafi and then they would identify the school of philosophy that he followed you know Ash'ari or in the, the the sufi school that he followed also you know shadili you know whatever they, all these names would be put after his name to identify this individual but of course this is really not from islam it's really not from islam to the degree it is used to identify the person's uh, line of reasoning or line of thought or study or whatever no harm in that sense but for people now to take it as a label to define themselves saying when they ask you what are you instead of saying i'm a muslim they say i'm a hanafi no this of course islamically this is not good you know this is not good even to say for example you know i'm a salafi you know uh, instead of saying i'm a muslim it's i'm a salafi these terminologies they only represent you know schools of thought to try to identify schools of thought you know lines of reasoning principles to identify oneself by them instead of identifying oneself by islam this is error and it does in fact breed divisions in the ummah where it was necessary titlings became necessary to distinguish for example between the shia and ahli sunna wal jamaa i mean because shia were calling themselves muslim you know so in order to distinguish themselves then this title was used you know you can see or the term sunni muslim evolved you know really that was people falling into a trap because once you said sunni muslim then it means also there's sunni muslim and shi'i muslim but in fact there's only muslim there is really only muslim and the issue concerning the sunna those who follow the sunna and those who are shi'a this issue has to be analyzed you know systematically according to quran and sunna in fact to say is it in fact are the shi'a in fact really Muslims or not? Is because Muslim is one. It's Muslim. If a person says, you know, I 
I make my declaration of faith. I make my hajj. I do all these other things. But I believe there's another prophet named Gulam Ahmed. He, as far as he said the other things, so yes, he was Muslim. But once he said, but I believe in this other prophet, Gulam Ahmed, then that nullified all of the other things. That Islam was just nullified by that statement. Similarly, where we're dealing with fundamental issues of the deen, where people begin to worship other than Allah and make it a part of their deen, then we have to say, this is no longer a part of Islam anymore. These are people who have stepped outside of the bounds of Islam. Because there's just Muslim. May we have the next question from the sisters? Acha, brother, my question is that uh, some people take advantage of the schools of thoughts. Like, whichever is the easier way out, they follow that, and they follow both the schools of thoughts, but they take the easier way out. Is that okay? Is it, I mean, wrong? Prophet Muhammad whenever he was presented with two things which were halal, what did he do? He chose the easier one. Okay? So from that point of view, if we have uh, two rulings, right? now both of these, because we're talking about ijtihad now, we're not talking about areas not of ijtihad, where it's a question of evidence. Prophet Muhammad said so and so, and so there's a clear issue here that either you do it or you don't do it. We're talking about an area now of ijtihad where the scholars have made ijtihad on an issue. If you apply the ijtihad of one school, it will make your life difficult, very difficult. But another school, using their ijtihad, it makes something which is practical. It's applicable in your circumstance. Then, for you to choose what is most applicable is perfectly legitimate. Prophet said, Yesiru, walatu asiru. Make things easy. Don't make it difficult. Adinu yusr, the religion is easy. So from this point of view, when you're dealing with areas of ijtihad, but when you're dealing with areas of Quranic texts, where one school is standing behind, or one opinion is standing behind a clear Quranic text and hadith fully supported, and the other school has an opinion which doesn't have that, and now you're choosing the other opinion. Why? Because it's easier here now. But you know in your heart really that one is correct. This is when you're in error. So to follow what is easier when you know that what is easier is not more correct, this is when you're in error. But if you're following what is easier, more practical to your circumstance, when you're dealing with an issue of ijtihad where both of these are legitimate arguments, then you are following the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad Is that clear? The next question from the brothers in the auditorium. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, this, this school of thought, according to you, is close to uh, Prophet Sallallahu and his companions. Which school of thought is closest to Prophet Muhammad and his companions? I would not try to claim any school of thought is closest. In some schools, they're closer in some issues, and they're farther in others. And in all of the schools, there are areas where they were farther 
than others. So I would not attempt to claim, you know, and again, once you fall into that bag, you fall into the Imami Azam bag, right? <laughs> you know, so I would just say that kind of uh, arguments is better to stay away from. Because you see, what, you, what are you trying to say here? You know, if in fact you, you bring an evidence, you know, you bring your support to say, well, this school is really closest to, what do you say? Well, everybody should be in this school. You all in the other schools, get out, come on, you're wrong, you come in this one here. See, then we've turned into partisanship again. You know, it's better, we know that the deal is not complete in any one of the schools. It is in the totality of that effort where the deen is complete for us. We can have the next question from the sister's side. Assalamu alaikum, brother. One of my Shia friends, when she was offering salah, I observed that she did not fold her hands, while the other friend who was following Ahle Hadith, she uh, hold her legs so tight as if uh, means there was no gap at all. And I asked for the clarification. She said that the shaitan take the place. And the men also stand in that way. Well, there are different ways of offering salah. When I went in Saudi, there I was been corrected by many, many ladies as to which posture I should adopt. I don't know. The posture that they told me was so difficult that I was very conscious about my posture. Then offering salah. Like the left, uh, right leg should be on the left leg and the side should be a concave like. So I didn't understand what's the right way. Please uh, clear the concept of offering salah, especially for the ladies. Okay. Um, first thing to note that because two issues have been raised here. One about the Shia not uh, clasping their hands on their chest or whatever. That is from their school of thought. You can also find it amongst the Maliki school. You know, that uh, portion of the Maliki uh, people in the Maliki school also pray with their hands to their sides. So, I mean, this is a, another issue. Right? Uh, the evidence from the Sunnah indicates that the Prophet ﷺ clasped his hands. In fact, Imam Malik in his Muwatta itself described the placing of the right hand on the left. So, though it may be, you know, found in the school among some of the followers that they pray with their hands to their sides, the majority or the abundance of evidence points to other than that, that this is in fact not correct. In terms of the prayer of the woman, and I know when I first learning about the deen, I announced to my family that I was a Hanafi. I was taught a special salah for the women. right? And you know, there's a salah for women and a salah for men. Now, this salah for women, if one looks at what is being done in the salah, one finds that it consistently goes against the clear commandments of the Prophet Muhammad It is done not on the basis of hadith of the Prophet but it's done on reasoning. This salah was created on reasoning. That the woman being aura, we have to do things so that she will not expose herself as much as possible. Now, this is the line of reasoning here. So they said when you put the clasp your hands, they should on their chest to cover the area of the bosom. The fact is, this, this was for women, this one is for men. But the point is, Prophet he did both. He didn't specify one for women, one for men. So, the placing of the hands on the chest, this is from the sunnah, authentic sunnah, describes him as doing this. 
the raising of the hand, of, actually. This is what, for the women, they're told, no, don't put your hand up. You know, this is, no, put your hand down here. But Prophet Muhammad did this also. He didn't specify for women. And in the bowing, when going into Rukur, they reason that if a woman bows in Rukur, you know, 45 degrees, it means that her posterior will be visible. So better she just bows it just this part way and touches her hands on her knees. Don't bow completely. But Prophet ﷺ said that the man who prayed his salah without making proper bowing, he told him to go and pray again because you didn't pray. This form of bowing is not acceptable. Unless there's something wrong with your back. You know, your, your back is crippled, something you've got back problems, then okay, it's allowed for you. Otherwise, if your back is okay, then you're supposed to bow 45 degrees. So that if you put water on your back, it's not going to fall to the front or to the back. 45 degrees. Going into sujood, again they reason, if the woman goes into sujood, her behind is up in the air. Oh, not good, not good. So she should crumple down and put her chest on her thighs, elbows on the ground, and huddle herself into this little ball. So nothing of her is visible really, but just this little hump. But Prophet he prostrated with his head behind him and the wives and the women of his time prayed in the same way. And he said, you should not put your chest on your thighs. He said, you should not put your elbows on the ground like a dog. You know. so, so this mode of prayer is in contradiction to the actual instructions of the Prophet When he said, Sallu kamara aytumuni, Salli, pray as you saw me pray. He was instructing the ummah. He didn't say, men, pray as you see me pray. Women, you have this other prayer. No. And if you go back to the early scholars, Abu Hanifa, Abu Yusuf, and the others, they were not teaching this prayer. This is something which came up later on, in the, especially in the Indian subcontinent, from the Ottoman period onwards. This was not in the early scholars teaching this. So, the prayer of the woman is in fact no different from the prayer of the man. And that prayer can be found in the authentic hadith where there's a compilation known as the prayer of the Prophet by uh, Nasruddin al-Bani, you know, which is available here at the, the bookstore, is distributed. This identifies the method of prayer based on the authentic hadith. My advice would be for you to take that, to follow it, uh, because as far as I've seen, it is one of the best collections of hadith describing the prayer. And as I said, the wives of the Prophet, the women in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, were known to pray as the men prayed. There was no distinction. The other thing I should just mention is that the issue of when standing, whether feet should be together or feet should be touching the people next to you. Now, when we go back to hadith, we'll find that there are references that the Sahaba, when they stood, there feet were touching each other, ankle to ankle, etc. Now, some people will go to extremes to try to, to, to establish this, right? Where you twist your feet outwards, you know, you're standing, you can feel your knees aching, you're trying to make ankles. If your foot, just so have people's feet are made in different ways. Okay? So if it is reasonable and comfortable for you to put your foot next to the other and your ankle touches, fine, alhamdulillah. But it's not required of you in the deen now to twist your foot to the point where, as the sister said, you're more concerned with your foot than your prayer. You know? So, 
we should also recognize moderation in, in trying to follow the instructions also. If your foot will not bend in a particular way, you do the closest thing that you can to it. But again, you know, you're held accountable only to what you could have done and you didn't do. You know, what you're unable to do based on physical, etc., then you're not held accountable. May we have the next question from the auditorium? Assalamualaikum. Now that uh, we have the knowledge of all the four um, major mazhabs, is it now possible or needed to uh, in unifying all the four mazhabs by taking the right rulings from all of them? The issue of unification of the madhabs. If Muslims are unable to unify themselves, then to talk about unification of the madhabs is, you know, something not really practical. The Muslim Ummah is so divided, etc. today that practically speaking, yes, there is an effort towards unification amongst many of the scholars meeting in Mecca yearly, you know, jointly making rulings. You know. So there is a body of fiqh which is now being compiled and has been for the past 10, 15 years where scholars from all the different schools are meeting. There's a majma fiqhi in Mecca where they meet and they Different scholars do researches on different issues. They make presentations. They discuss it, argue, and then they put out their rulings. You know, so this kind of effort is a new effort. You know, we can say perhaps in the future it will uh, develop a more unified approach. But the reality is that when there were many schools of thought in the early days, it was not in and of itself harmful. Because there was a central leadership that was Islamic and they were applying the principles based on what was most correct in the view of the leadership. But when you have no correct leadership, then to try to dream of unification, it's a, as they say, an impossible dream. It's not really practical. With the unification of the Ummah, inshallah, when the Mahdi comes, you know, when we have one leader, I mean, if it happens before, mashallah, but I mean, we know for sure it will happen in the time of the Mahdi, when he will become the leader and his madhab will be the madhab. Everybody will follow that madhab. There will be differing opinions, even then. The thing of removing differing opinions, we can never do this. In areas of ijtihad, people will always have differing opinions, but the issue is that we have to be able to respect the differences. And when we have leadership, we follow that leadership. Do we have a question from the brothers in the library? Assalamu alaikum. Uh, my question is that uh, in your talk just now you said that you would not like to claim any school of thought to be nearer to the Quran and the Sunnah, which is the nearest to the Quran and Sunnah. And that uh, all these schools, in all the schools, some schools are farther and some are nearer to the Quran and Sunnah. So do you know of any ruling in the school of Ahle Hadith which is wrong or which is farther or which is away from the Quran and the Sunnah? Well, when the person raised the question of schools of thought, we were talking about what I understood from it were, quote-unquote, the traditional schools of thought. Now, the issue of Ahli Hadith, for me to make a judgment would require me to study if it is to be looked at as a madhab, separate madhab altogether, 
you know, which has developed its own line of fiqh, etc., 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 then I would have to go and look at it in that way. Because when we talk about al-hadith today, it represents a madhab in India and in Pakistan. But if we go over the rest of the Muslim world, it doesn't exist. It didn't exist as a madhab per se, with scholars of this madhab carrying on. This is something, I mean, it was a way of thinking which existed within the existing madhabs. That there were schools, people studied on different scholars, but they inclined towards hadith, so they were known as the people of hadith, even from the ancient times of Imam Malik. Okay? So the issue of Ahli Hadith now being a madhab, I would refrain from making this kind of a, a judgment. Why? Because uh, having not gone through and looked at the books, if you bring me a series of fiqh books of the Ahli Hadith, their fiqh books, you know, with all their rulings and so on, so for me to go through and analyze it and look and judge the rulings and so on, so then after that kind of a process, if you want me to find where they've gone wrong, believe me, brother, if you think that they didn't make any mistakes, then you are in error. If you think that the group or the movement known as Ali Hadith today in India, that they didn't make any mistakes, then you are in error. Because for sure, any effort which we make as human beings have errors. So without even having to go to the books, I'll say there are errors. Right? But I would say that the frame of mind of Ahli Hadith is a frame of mind which is close to the way of the early generations of Muslim scholars. The frame of mind, not necessarily saying the madhab. Make a distinction between the two. Because a person may be following you know, in terms of his fiqh, etc., he's a Maliki, but his frame of mind is Ahli Hadith. But I did point out, even from the early stages, that Abu Hanifa and those who studied in his area who were students coming from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and others, I mean, they're leaning towards opinion, though they were called Ahli Ra'i, we cannot look at them as being deviant because they were following the opinion held by certain Sahaba also. This was a trend amongst a body of the Sahaba. So if we go back and we say, which group is closest to the Sunnah? The group which decided to pray in Bani Quraidha or the one who decided to pray on the way. Why not a problem? Prophet Muhammad okayed both. He okayed both. So both trends, the trend which focuses on the hadith and the rulings of the hadith, staying away from a lot of opinionated rulings or seeking the reasons behind the rulings, but strictly stick to the hadith more closely. This was a trend from the time of the Sahaba. And the other trend where people working out rulings, trying to find the reasons behind them, what they call the ilal, behind the laws, that this was a trend amongst the Sahaba also, which was approved by Prophet Muhammad So it becomes very dangerous when one group now tries to promote itself as being the closest. It becomes problematic. It is a frame of mind. You know, I prefer myself to look at it as a frame of mind. A frame of mind which is that we follow Islam as given to us in the Quran and the Sunnah as understood by the Sahaba 
and the early generations of righteous scholars and scholars. This is the correct, in my view, frame of mind. Whatever school that one follows, that this frame of mind should be the guiding frame behind it. May we have the next question from the sister's side? 